Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we are led in Scripture by Pastor Ben Hartwig, and we learn how we have a great and endless spiritual resource. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, as Pastor Ben Hartwig delivers his sermon titled, Recognizing Spiritual Blessings. Right now, finding ourselves in the book of Ephesians. Uh, now, I am going. We're going to go through Ephesians in kind of a bit out of an order, out of order way, because we started in chapter two. Now, that's been some time ago. I expect that you remember everything that was said there. Um, that's been a, a good while back. But we we started in chapter two. But we're going to go back and we're going to start in chapter. Uh, one verse one, and then we're going to go. We're just going to go through the book as we have opportunity together, as um, as uh, as I would be here uh, uh, preaching for uh, for us as we um, as we go through this. So we'll skip that portion that we had in chapter two back then. But uh, right now we're going to look at the first ten verses, and what we're going to do is we're going to look this and look at this in kind of a an overview uh, way. We're not going to look at at small portions. Um, we're going to look at an overview manner since, uh, you know, the, the time is sporadic that we would have uh, in this. So that's the way we're going to do that. And we will look here at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, we, we need help, Lord, as we recognize your spiritual blessings, recognize what you have done, what you are doing. Father, let's go so far as to say that if we don't see this as we ought and as you intend, that it is sin, Father, because you are looking for us to go further, not just to be saved and then go no further, but, Father, to be saved, to serve you, and, Father, utilize what you have given us in and of yourself. And so, Father, give us help as we look at this. Give us help as you instruct us, as we recognize what you have done since before the beginning of what we know is time. Father, what you have planned. And, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for redemption through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, rooted in your elective purpose. Father, help us to understand and see clear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as a way of introduction then to Ephesians, you know, you look at Ephesians and you might start, you might say, well, what is the purpose? What is the purpose for Paul in his writing of Ephesians? Why did he write it? Because it's not obvious. It's, it's the, the purpose of this is not blatantly obvious, and uh, you know, it, it isn't a question that any commentator will answer with um, you know, absolute authority and certainty. So if we're, you know, if we go to the letter of the Corinthians, you know, to the Corinthians, we know why that was written, right? It was obviously written to correct a lot of problems, an endless amount of issues, doctrinal issues, spiritual issues, all kinds of issues and things that were happening there at Corinth. And so we see what was there. But in this letter to the Ephesians, it seems that it isn't 
correction necessarily that uh, he's, he's trying to put forth, but it's Paul making an attempt, trying to instruct them and tell them how to get to, you know, how to take this further, how to go to the next level, how to uh, expand, how to, in, in your sanctification, get a real grasp, get a real handle on what you actually have in Christ. And then when you go to the latter part of the letter, when you get into chapter 4 and 5, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of practical use in there as it pertains to the family in these matters. And, and so to not do that, to not get a grasp, to not see where we're at in Christ as we are to be going further and to be growing in our sanctification, to not do that is, and, and to recognize these spiritual blessings, we should say this would be sin. So we see here the apostle's mind as you go through the entire letter and, and especially here in his first and second, uh, second chapter and into the third too. It, when, what you see whenever you read this is the, the apostle's mind is filled with the theme of the glory of Christ and his perfect provision for the life of men. You know, when Paul, as I said, when, when his thoughts turned to the other churches in the whole neighborhood of, of, uh, of the area and, and the area of Asia, he was dealing with problems, a lot of problems. And here, as he writes to the Ephesians, he's not having to deal with a specific or a particular pastoral problem or a, or a doctrinal difficulty. So now he, he fulfilled his desire to express here in, in teaching and exhortation and in, in, in a praise and in prayer uh, the glory of the purpose of God in Christ and now the responsibility the responsibility that the church has to make known that purpose by proclamation and by living in unity, by living in love and living in purity. And again, he gets into those practical matters of that uh, later on in the letter. And it's almost as if when you read, especially in these first few chapters here, it's, it's almost like he's so thrilled that he isn't having to deal with the horrible. We'll mention Corinth again. He isn't having to deal with that which is so horrible that now we get... All the beauty and the glory of God is laid out as he looks to take them and then also us. Kind of the next level, if you will. There was a woman about 100 years ago. Her name was Hetty Green. And at the time, uh, she was known as uh, America's greatest miser. Um, she was went far past frugality. And uh, in 1916... She died, and she left an estate that was worth about $100 million. Now, in 1916, $100 million is a lot now. It's a pretty vast fortune now. But in 1916, that would be uh, quite a, uh, a vast estate. So she was, my family calls me a tightwad, uh, but she, this, I, I don't have, I don't hold a candle to this woman. And, and she uh, would eat cold oatmeal because she didn't want to use the, the, what it cost to heat oatmeal. Her son had a severe uh, leg injury, and uh, to find a free clinic um, ended up, he got infection in his leg and had to have his leg amputated. Uh, she also, it, it, supposedly, she had hastened her own death because she sent herself into a stroke arguing somebody with somebody on two different types of milk and why you should buy this milk that was cheaper than the other milk. Now. I look at that to say the ridiculousness of that whenever she had this vast resource that she had just to be able to buy the stupid milk or go to the doctor and get her kid fixed up and all of this. Well, this book is written partially, and I'm not the guy that claims to have Paul's purpose whenever all the great commentators don't have a purpose, but the book seems to be written here to Christians who might treat their spiritual resources kind of like this miserly old lady treated hers at least her earthly resources. We have a vast spiritual resource that is far greater than something as eternally worthless as $100 million. And as Christians, we fail to tap into that quite often. We fail to dig into that. And, and, and in that, we can easily fall victim to spiritual malnutrition because we don't take advantage of the great storehouse of spiritual nourishment of resources that is at our disposal. And again, I'm arguing that it's, it's sin when I don't do that. I am in sin when I am not doing that. This is a favorite book of many people for good reason. 
book's been called, this has been called the treasure house of the Bible. It's been called many things. But this beautiful letter teaches us as children of God what our great riches truly are, what our inheritance really is, the fullness of Christ, what it is to be part of His church. It's no accident that the very first thing that he speaks of in the book is his elective purpose for election, for predestination as saints of God. That's the basis for everything else that's going to follow, and that's why he starts there. Now, first, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You know, I do want to at least go through this verse by verse, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the, on the, the salutation, the greeting there in the beginning. Um, in the apostleship of Paul and the letters, like what's in the Corinthians again. Uh, the letter is addressed very simply. It's been addressed to those who have been washed by the blood of Christ, those who have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. He lays out in the first statement the foundation of these blessings for the people of God, the foundation being, of course, Jesus Christ. He seeks to see that they would tap in to all that spiritual prosperity that is absolutely available to them. And then he goes into the spiritual blessings in Christ and just this very, very long sentence of everything that we have. Now, when we see this issue of blessing, we need to know a couple things. We should know its basis and just exactly where this is coming from. When we see every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we recognize that the term is to be understood in, in a local sense, indicating that the sphere of blessing, which are related to the spirit as well as the location of the exalted crisis is heaven. This is important because if I put my blessing on you, if, 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 if a boy comes to me and asks for my daughter's hand in marriage and asks for my blessing, all I can do is say yes, right? All I can do is say yes and, and give, that, give that permission. That is what I am doing is giving my permission, you know, and adding in don't mess it up, right? Or something like this. But it's not really significant in any way except for when you're asking for my blessing, except for asking my permission to do something. As the beginning of the spiritual blessing list, as this list unfolds, Paul begins with the basis of all spiritual blessing, grounding it in verse 3 and where this comes from, where this comes from. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then going into verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, the Bible from cover to cover has the doctrine of election as one of its major themes. And as we go into this, and, and we need to see the doctrine as Paul does. We need to see this doctrine as Paul does, see, see this doctrine along with predestination as one of the greatest of all spiritual blessings. Because without it, we don't have anything else. We've got nothing else. We're told here that God is the blessed one. He is good in a way and to an, a, a degree that no human being except His own incarnate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, can be. Nothing is more appropriate for God's people than to bless Him for His great goodness in all things. Pain, struggle, trials, frustration, opposition, adversity. We are to what? Praise God because He is good and He is good in the midst of all of it. And for that we praise Him. We recognize Him as the supreme blesser. He has blessed us, again, with every spiritual blessing. God blesses us because He's the source of all blessing, of every good thing. Goodness can only come from God because there's no source of goodness outside of God. Then there is us. We are the receptors, the receptors of blessing. Now you've heard people say, bless God, that we should bless God. How do we bless God? How does that happen? Because that's far different than the inverse of God blessing us. I surely cannot bless God in the way that He blesses me. When we bless God, what do we do? We speak good of Him. That's what we do. We speak good of God. When God blesses us, He actually communicates good 
to us. We bless him with our words. He blesses us with deeds and communicates that good to us. This is important as we concern ourselves here with the doctrine of election. We bless him with words. He blesses us with deeds. All we can do is speak well of him because in ourselves we have nothing good to give. I have to have him to have anything good to give and in himself he lacks no goodness. But when he blesses us, the situation is reversed. He cannot bless us for our goodness. Whereas I can only bless God speaking well of him because of his goodness. He cannot bless us for our goodness because I don't have any outside of him. Rather, he blesses us with goodness. Our heavenly father lavishes us with every goodness, every good gift, every blessing. That's his nature. It's a good thing for us because it's our need. What has He given us? In a moment, we'll talk about what is arguably the most important thing. But when we see that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, it is in relation to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't refer to immaterial blessings as opposed to material ones, but we see the divine origin, the divine origin of the blessings, whether they help us in our minds, our spirits, our bodies, our daily living, however else, spiritual refers to the source of the blessing, not necessarily the extent of it. So, be careful not to continually ask God for that which He has already given you. We do that often. We do that quite often. We pray for more love. We pray for more peace. We pray for more joy. What we need to recognize is this has already been given to us. Now, we, pray, we might pray to utilize those things as we ought. We might pray to do as we ought with those things that has already been given us. But we need to realize we already have this. Whenever the Holy Spirit has been redeemed, has been, has been given to us when we are redeemed, we have all this. We have received all this with the Spirit. We are now, if we are saved, if we are born again, we are complete in Christ. Now, not complete in the sense that we're glorified yet, not complete in the sense that we're sinless yet, as we will be in heaven. But these are the things that just aren't promised. These are possessed now. God can't give you more than He has already given the Son, right? Because there's nothing more to receive. It isn't that we need to receive more. It's that we need to do more with what He has already given to us is the inheritance that Christ has is it ours in equal measure yes is that now yes is that complete now not yet but we don't need more of the spirit for instance I don't need more of the spirit now we can talk about manifest presence of the Holy Spirit and all that but we don't need more of the Holy Spirit I need to be more sensitive to the spirit if you're in Christ you possess these things so you should live, is what he's telling me. He's telling me I should live as I possess these things. All that the Lord has, those in Christ have. His position is our position. His power is our power. And I'm not talking about creative power. I'm not getting stupid with that or anything like that. I'm not talking about creative power speaking and it, and it goes into existence. But his position is our position. His grace will not fail those who trust Him. And so now, with that background, we look at the greatest then of all the spiritual blessings as far as Paul's concerned. This is what Paul evidently feels as far as the greatest of spiritual blessings and that which he is grounding the book in. What was the forming of this body in eternity past? How did this come about? By the greatest of all spiritual blessings, according to Paul, which is predestination. The forming of the body. So let's get a timeline. Real simple timeline. The beginning of time as we know it as human beings, because time's a creation too, right? I mean, God created time for you and I. And so time is a creation too. So you take the beginning of time whenever that started. And then we take, say, the return or something like this and then eternity. But if we take a timeline, this is pretty simple because it says before the foundation of the world. From all eternity, the emphasis is on being the adult son of a family. And you see that election and predestination is God's absolute act of what? Free love that is grounded in himself. It can't be grounded any other way. You have no assurance in Jesus Christ if it's not grounded in God. 
And so we are thankful that this is grounded no other place than in himself. But why? Because there's not any good in me. Outside of Christ, there's not good in me. I am a sinner. It is God who is good. And nothing apart from God gives him direction. God does not have counselors. God doesn't go and ask and seek affirmation from people to see, do you feel like what I'm doing is okay? God does not have counselors. A, a very good um, charismatic friend of mine, uh, and I'll use a, a big C charismatic friend of mine, uh, he, he, he recognized that you really can't get around this in the Bible. So what did he do? He humanized it. And he said, well, okay, I see what you're saying, but what, what God has done is he has looked through the portals of time. He saw who would receive him, who would repent and trust Christ. And so those are the people that he elected. So what he is saying is that I, the sinner, am a counselor of God. I, the sinner, am a counselor of God. I effectively spurred his sovereign choice. God has no counselors. This is about his glorious grace. This is not about me. This is about his grace. If this were the case, then I would be worshiping myself, not the God who has redeemed me. Now, there's a few different kinds of election as is found in the Bible. We don't have time for all that, obviously, but this one is obviously and clearly uh, salvational. Jesus makes it clear in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word carries an idea of an irresistible force. It was a word used in uh, Greek literature, ancient Greek literature, uh, of a desperately hungry man being drawn to food. It was also used of demonic forces being drawn to animals when they were not able to possess men. God's elective will irresistibly draws to himself those whom he has predetermined to do what? Love and forgive while having no effect on those that he is not. This is a glorious truth. Why? Because without it, we would have no assurance. We would have no assurance. If he didn't do it, that assurance would be on yourself and not him. And just as Paul does, we need to praise God for this. We see this completely apart from us and the before the foundation of the world and therefore completely apart from any deserving merit that you or I could have. We are told that God chose us in Him by the sovereign election of God. Those who are saved were placed in eternal union with Christ before creation took place. And there is in this discussion, of course, the, the, the uh, man's free will. Thankfully, Man's free will is not in the sense that many people suppose. We certainly do have a will. Scripture recognizes our will. Apart from the will of God, man is captive to sin, right? Outside of Christ, I am captive to sin. Now, we can call that free if we like, but captivity to sin is not freedom. We can hardly call that free. There are frequent commands to the unsaved to respond to the Lord those who are not born again, to respond to the Lord. That clearly indicates the responsibility of man to do what? To exercise his will. And if he does, repent. If he does trust Christ, what has God done? God will save him, right? God makes that possible. All the while, the Bible makes clear that no person receives Jesus Christ as Savior who has not been set apart by God for, for holiness. So Jesus gives us both truths. In the Gospel of John in chapter 6. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. How do you reconcile that? Why would you? This is the issue that many people have a problem with. We have to reconcile this. Why? Because I'm so ridiculously smart that I have to reconcile everything. And sometimes it comes to the point of fury. And this is odd, really. This is really strange to get angry about such a thing that I don't understand. It's far from what Paul intended in the passage. It's far from the blessing that Paul attributes this. God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility both exist, right? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility in obeying Jesus Christ. These things seem opposite. They seem irreconcilable. And the fact is that from our very limited human perspective, they seemingly are re irreconcilable. They seem that way to us. Why? Because we're not as smart as we think we are, right? 
This is why so many well-meaning Christians throughout the history of the church have tried to reconcile these things and have completely floundered doing it. Since the human mind has trouble, what does it do? It comes up with many convoluted ways around the doctrine, like looking through the portals of time or something like this. We cannot compromise one truth in favor for another. What happens is, is we'll weaken both of them, and then, which is what normally happens, and we try to take a position in between them, and we mess not only our responsibility up, but we mess up God's sovereignty. We just simply believe both these things. We believe these truths. We leave the harmonizing to God, not to our own minds. So God's sovereignty, His sovereign election, His the, the predestination, it doesn't eliminate my responsibility to place faith in Christ and to trust Christ. I must do that. You must place faith in Christ. Divine sovereignty and human response, they're inseparable. They're inseparable parts of salvation, but exactly how they operate together is only for the infinite mind of God and isn't for me. It's for me to obey Christ. <laughs> That's what it's for us to do. It's for us to obey Christ, not to devise some kind of tricky way to explain it. It's to obey Jesus. We're the object of God's choice and that is what precedes all the other blessings. It's like when Paul lays this out, he lays this out in a way that he's structuring this foundationally, right? He starts with Jesus. He goes to his sovereign purpose and his sovereign choice. He goes into these blessings, and it's that this is where all of this is rooted. Why did God do this? Why? Certainly didn't have to, right? You've often heard, you know, it's, it's, it's like God didn't need us. God wasn't lonely. I mean, you've heard all these things, right? Well, what we recognize as we go through this passage here is we, we see that it's to the praise of His glory and grace. He does this for His own glory. God chose before the foundation of the world in order that none of us could boast. That I could not take glory in myself, but that the glory is His and His alone. Salvation is all of God. And to guarantee that every detail of salvation was accomplished before any human being was born, even before a planet was formed, the reason is what? To the glory of His grace. You do all to the glory of God, you see the truth, you can have assurance that God is calling you out. So we take that part of the Father's elective purpose, and that takes us to the latter half of this passage uh, towards from there to verse 10. That's the matter of redemption. Redemption. The spiritual blessing of redemption. Again, no election, no redemption, but let's, let's take a ridiculous illustration, as most of them are, right? If you go to the arcade... Some of you younger folks might not even know what an arcade is, but years ago, you'd go to the arcade and you would get these tokens, okay? And you'd get a pocket full of tokens and for $5, you could play video games all night long. I know you can play one now, but uh, you, could, you could play these video games. So you go get your tokens, you feed them into a skee-ball machine. Now, um, skee-ball is a, uh, uh, you take the ball, you throw it up there. Again, maybe some of you have done this. My wife will destroy you at all uh, uh, at this game. She's very good at it. And, uh, and what happens is, is it spits out tickets, so as you score points, it spits out tickets. The more points you score, the more tickets you get. And then you take those tickets and you're really excited because you got this handful of tickets and you go redeem those tickets for plastic junk, right? And so then you get to take your plastic junk and you get to take that home with you and throw it in the trash can. Now, this is how we often think of, because when we use the word redemption, take your tickets, there's a sign on the wall by the skee-ball machine, take your tickets to the counter to get your... I don't, wouldn't call it a prize, whatever that is, to get your plastic junk, okay, and redeem your tickets. And so in our vocabulary, when we think of the word redemption, uh, we, we don't look at redemption rightly so often. We don't look at redemption how is, it is intended to be looked at. Because when we look at the idea of redeeming our tickets for plastic junk, that's often how we think of redemption. We think of it lightly. We take it for granted. We don't take redemption as seriously as we ought. But this is not what we see in Ephesians when we look at redemption. This is not what we see here as Paul lays this out for us. You know, again, major theme here. 
in Ephesians. Major theme in the entire Bible. And here it carries the idea of much more than, ex than simply exchanging one thing for another. Or especially exchanging one thing for another of equal value. Our minds are so trained. You know, as we grow up from, from small children and, 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 and grow through adolescence and into adults, our minds are so trained by the small and the insignificant and the worldly that we can't, we have a hard time grasping things that matter so often. And our minds are so trained, and, that, and, and it goes to that of redemption as well. That we can't grasp just how big and how serious this is. And, and again, it's why we can't get a handle on how bad our sin is. And so we can't see how big redemption is. Many types, there, there's different meanings for the word redemption. And of course, what we want to know is what it, what it means here. Uh, and it's possible, um, you know, this to the unredeemed sinner, this may be one of the more important words that we have, redemption. There are different words that are translated. The strongest of those is literu, which is what's used here. Uh, it's literally meant to release from captivity. That's what the word means, to release from captivity. It, it carried the strongest meaning of any word that meant redemption. It referred to paying a ransom. You paid a ransom in order to release a person from bondage. A little more serious than taking your tickets for plastic junk, right? It, 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 to release a person from captivity, especially that of slavery. During this time that this was written, the Roman Empire had around 6 million slaves. Um, slavery was a big business. And if there was a person that wanted to free a loved one, uh, somebody that wanted to free their friend who was a slave, he would purchase the slave and then grant that slave freedom. So I would buy the slave and then I would grant you freedom and you are free to go. Um, included testifying that deliverance, if you will, we'll use that word, deliverance by a written document. And so the word here in the past is luxury was used to designate the freeing of a slave in that way. Me being a slave to sin, now being freed by Christ. This is the idea that's carried in the New Testament to represent the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid the redemption price to buy, himself a, buy for himself a fallen mankind. Set them free from their sin. Now, do not make a mistake here. Every human being born since the fall has come into this world enslaved to sin. I don't become a sinner whenever I'm five years old and I tell my mom a lie. I tell my mom a lie when I'm five years old because I'm a sinner. And so we're born into this, enslaved to sin, under bondage to a nature that is corrupt. It's evil. It's separated from its creator. Nobody is spiritually free. The soul that sins will die. This is bondage. Left to our own devices, we are completely helpless against the consequences of sin. Now, it's especially important that you listen if you are unredeemed right now. If you're unredeemed and you're still in sin, if you have not repented, if you have not trusted Christ by faith, then sin is your captor. Sin is your slave owner, if you will. And it demands a price for your release. Now, we know outside of Christ, that's eternal death, right? We know that that is... Hell, outside of Christ. Death is the price that has to be paid for man's redemption from sin. Biblical redemption is where the act of God Himself, God paid the ransom for the price of sin. In Romans, Paul speaks of redemption as have being freed from sin and as being freed and being slaves of righteousness. There are elements of redemption that we'll look at here real quickly. The first being the most important, links to the previous the predestinarian passage that we had in the first half of our passage, and that is that the Redeemer Himself, Jesus Christ, without Him, no redemption. Verse 6, second half of verse 6, I'll just start at the beginning there, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. We have a need. The need is redemption. Redemption from sin. Of course, only supplied by Jesus Christ. You look at the undeserved favor and love, again, which is directly linked to that which comes before it, in God's sovereignty. You see the undeserved favor and love, and you see that 
It is that which we have been blessed with in the Beloved. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer from sin, those that are His, the elect, are, why? Because of His grace. This links to 1 Peter. 1 Peter where there is a, it's, it's, it's laid out as a disposition to favoritism to His own. This is grace. This is undeserved. This is Christ. This is redemption. Now when redeemed, what do we become? We become acceptable to God. We're redeemed, we're acceptable to God, belonging to Christ. It is by faith we are made one with Him, placed in His body, in Christ, which is a term that is used in Ephesians, being in Christ. Jesus alone has the inherent right to all the goodness of God. So if you're identified with Christ, if you're identified with Him by faith, that goodness is now our goodness. Again, being blessed by God, the goodness of God. And so because our Savior and our Lord is the beloved of the Father and possesses all the goodness of the Father. We are also the beloved of the Father and possess His goodness. We need to get that. It's sin not to. And that's where He's taking them. Every Christian is God's beloved child because the Lord Jesus Christ has become our Redeemer. He has paid the price. If you are His and being graced by His grace, it's a glorious thing to be graced by God. And so this is all a, a obviously good and glorious thing because why? I desperately need this redemption. I have to have this redemption. We are the ones that have redemption through His blood. This book is such a, a, a great explanation of this truth. As we saw, uh, again, some time ago, whenever we were in chapter 2, Paul says, what? We were dead in our trespasses and not sick, anything like that. We didn't have the flu. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were without hope, without God in the world. He will tell us that we were formerly walking in the futility of our mind. We are lost, darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of ignorance and hardness of heart. We could say these people, but these people are the only kind of people there are, right? And these are the people that God chose to redeem. We need redemption. If we were already good, you know, it's like Josh mentioned so often, you know, the, the country music theology, you know, on that stupid song where I believe most people are good. If we were good, we wouldn't need a redeemer. We wouldn't need salvation. We have to realize the need for redemption until a person sees that. There's no knowledge of it. If you're saved, you know that you had to see that you were hopelessly enslaved to sin. Otherwise, you would have never sought to, to, to be freed from it. But when you do realize is that you're freed from the curse of sin and then placed into the body of Christ. But we have to understand it came with a price. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. Redemption through what? Redemption through His blood. Redemption does not come free, just as the slave would have had to have been bought and then set free by the good mercy and grace of that person who bought that slave and then set that slave free. What did Jesus do here? Jesus gave of Himself the only way, because the cost is death, right? That's the price. Somebody has to die. Jesus gave His blood. There's nothing more that can be given. It costs this precious blood of the Son of God to buy men from the slave market of sin. What is the price of sin? It's death, right? It's death. The shedding of blood exemplifies death. Christ's death that came from the shedding of His own blood intended as the substitute for our own death. This is the death that we deserved, right? The death that I deserved could not save myself from our beloved Savior, holy and undeserving, took it upon Himself. And He made the payment for what otherwise would have condemned us to death and hell. You read the Old Testament and you find all the blood, all the sacrificed animals that was offered on the altar 
You know, when you read the book of Leviticus and, and you, you maybe you're on a yearly Bible reading plan or something like this and you get to the book of Leviticus and you see all this, you're like, well, I'm going to skip a lot of this stuff. And if you read that and really read it closely, it's a lot of blood in that book. It's a lot of blood. And it would have given a picture that sin demands blood. The big problem was that blood was not able and it wasn't intended to cleanse the offers there, those who were offering their sacrifices on the altars. It wasn't intended to cleanse them from their sin. It was intended to point them to something else. It was intended to, 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 in faith to point them to something else that God was going to do. These animals were symbolic, of course. You see, it was by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ that we have been born again, that we are now being sanctified. Christ said that His blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. While slaves on the block were bought with money, we are not given a perishable redemption. This is much different. We're not given a perishable redemption bought by perishable things like silver and gold. This is the blood of the unblemished and spotless lamb, the blood of Christ. This redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, in his blood, through faith, has paid the price of those enslaved by sin, bought them out of the slave market where they were in bondage, and set us free. Set us free as liberated sons of God. It is now in our freedom that we are in union with Christ. It's in our freedom we're in union with Christ. Receive now every good thing that He is and that He has. His death frees us from sin's guilt, frees us from condemnation, frees us from bondage. And even on glorious day, it will free us from death. But Christ has gone to the cross to die the death of a slave murderer and pay the price that we should have rightfully paid ourselves. Verse 7 there, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. So you look at the result, the result of redemption. Two aspects here focused on. One is the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is an obvious result of our redemption. And then there is something more, and maybe not so obvious, and that is wisdom and insight. Again, you think along the lines of Paul taking his readers to the next level, taking them a little bit higher in their faith. And so for the sinner in his sin and realizing that sin, the primary result of that redemption is what? It's forgiveness. For those that have experienced the blessing of forgiveness, it's a wonderful truth, right? If we get it, it's a wonderful truth. We need to be redeemed because we need to be forgiven. There are those that are speaking from, they speak from philosophy and psychology, and they say, you know what? We can't be blamed for our sin. It's due to our genes. We got bad genes. It's due to our upbringing. It's due to our environment. It's due to all these things external, which can affect us. But really, that's not the root of this. We know that isn't true. My sin is my fault, and I'm accountable for it. The guilt is mine. The consequences are mine. And anybody with honesty about this knows that this is the case. We have sin. We have guilt. And Christ will remove both. We'll remove the sin, remove the guilt, if we would repent and we would trust Him. Jesus shed His blood. Christ took away the sins of the world, took them to where they could never return. This is how far a believer is separated from his sin. And what we need to do is live in light of that result. We need to live in light of that. It's tragic that many Christians are depressed about our failings, we're depressed about our shortcomings, we're depressed about our wrongdoings whenever, and, and, and we think and we act like God, like He's still holding our sin against us. Like he's still holding this against us. And we forget that because God has taken, Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, you know, we're separated from that. We're separated from those sins as far as the east is from the west. We're separated from that. And we're told in Romans, what? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That forgiveness is undeserved. Yes, it is undeserved. 
Again, our minds have a hard time with this because we have to deserve things to get them in our minds, right? You, don't, you shouldn't give me something and I, unless I deserve I don't deserve this. Why are you giving me this? That's, what we, that's how we think. But this is free. This is complete. Those who have him have freedom from sin. We have it now. We have it throughout eternity. We continue to sin from time to time, unfortunately. And we need continued forgiveness. But we do not need continued redemption. We are forgiven at the moment of salvation. But we must confess and repent as we live this life until the day of glory when we will sin no more. Because sin has effect on you as a Christian, your growth, your peace, your usefulness, the ability to have intimate, rich communication with the Father, it's effective. It's, it's, uh, it's affected. But there are no second-class Christians, and God accepts the believer in the way He accepts His Son. And so we must accept ourselves as forgiven and as righteous because that's what God Himself declares us to be. When we do that, we will sin less. We will sin less and we will serve as we will begin to be serving as we are, recognizing we are in a high place. Not because we put ourselves there because we're so great, but because He has put us there in Christ. You know, you may know somebody who knows a president or a king or somebody that is considered to be great, but, you know, I know people that are children of God, which is far greater, the creator of the universe. This is a wonderful forgiveness. But then he goes on to the matter of wisdom and insight. So he gives us redemption, he gives us these things, but then he takes us to wisdom and insight. You know, as I talk with, with, with Christian friends, that's what, that's what we talk about. We talk about, I, I need some insight. I need wisdom. And this is what we have. And, 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 we, and we're told if we ask for it, He'll give it to us, right? We gain understanding of things that we could not understand before. We understand, we begin to understand very important eternal things. Life, death, sin, God, righteousness, eternity. Insight gives us this practical look into life, and that's what he gets into in the latter chapters of this letter. And it gives us a practical look into life, the things that matter, the needs, the problems, the principles of everyday living, and again, the things that make a difference and matter. He gives us practical ability to handle daily things and do it in a godly way. So while... Forgiveness is sweetest for the sinner. Now we're to go on, right? We've been forgiven. We are, we are living for Him. Things have changed, so it doesn't stop there. He gives us now the good sense to understand His Word, and so now we're able to obey it. It is surprising. Should be surprising. There's so many people that, that commit themselves and, uh, to so many ridiculous and meaningless causes. People that really, while they wouldn't admit it, they know God exists, but they, they don't want to recognize that God exists and much less trust Him or serve Him. These are the people that have no ability to know what life is actually about, to know what this is really about, what eternity about, what is this about. And this leads us to the reason for all of this according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to do what? To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Why? Why would He do this for me? I was opposed to Him. Why would He do this? What is He doing? Why in the world would God do all this for sinners? Why did He? As in the first half of the passage there, why would He choose me before the foundation of the world, making us then holy? Why would He make you holy? Why would He make you blameless, predestined us to adoption as His children, redeeming us through His blood, lavishing us with forgiveness, wisdom, insight, according to the infinite riches of His grace? I'm going to oversimplify this. Maybe because I'm not smart enough to take it any further. But it's because he's going to gather everything to himself. He's gathering everything to himself. When the kingdom comes, eternity begins new. 
the new heavens, the new earth is established. Why? Jesus Christ is the goal of history. It's not all the stupid little things that don't matter that we concern ourselves with from day to day. Jesus Christ is the goal of history. All that was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. All evil will be disposed of. God will establish an incomparable unity in Himself of all things that remain. That's the goal of the universe. That's where we're heading. It's for His glory. It's for His praise. Again, maybe a bit oversimplified, but that's what we're told. His glory, His pr praise. You must see that all, everything, it's hopeless apart from God. History belongs to God. Not the, the, the puny plans of, of man or, or the perverse power of, of Satan. History is written, it's directed by the Creator. He will see it to the purpose, and that purpose is the summing up of all things in Christ. Because it's about Him. Now, if you're still in your sin, you must see the necessity of repentance and faith and see that everything will be complete in Christ. And it will, it will not like it might. If we work this out and we do real good, this is going to work out just right. No. It will forever operate in righteous harmony and newness along with all the things in heaven and all the things in earth. So realize what you have is what Paul is saying. And as he goes through the rest, it will see what you have. Realize what you have. Don't miss it. It'll take you to another place in worship for His glory and for His purpose. We are part of it. Let's pray. Father, God, Lord, we thank You, we praise You. Father, for forgiveness, for redemption, for the things we don't understand, for the things that we shouldn't sit and try to reconcile, Father, those that our minds can't completely get around, but Father, that we would just fall in line with faith and belief and trust in what You are doing, and Father, not fail to use the redemption that you've given us for your glory and your purpose. Because, Father, it is for nothing but our good. It's the benefit, Father, of our salvation. It is for nothing but our, it is for our good, but more importantly, for your glory. Father, we thank you, and we praise you for it. Father, help us to use it as you would have us to, that we would be as useful as we can be for your purposes. And again, we can look forward to our good as this is all consummated in your heaven. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Ben Hartwig's sermon titled Recognizing Spiritual Blessings. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.